Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the latest edition of Credit Crunch, part of the Fick Focus podcast series where we focus on all things credit. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me is colleague Sam Geyer. Before diving in, a little public service announcement as we close in on our 250th episode under the FIC Focus umbrella. Listener support has been instrumental to our success, and our continued success would benefit greatly if you could take a moment to follow, rate, and share. Thank you for your time and consideration. Today on Credit Crunch, something a little different for you, a conversation that we think we're going to find deeply interesting, credit risk-sharing alternately known as Significant Risk Transfer, or SRT. It's a market that's been notable uh, in terms of the both financial crisis, in terms of growth, as banks look to preserve regulated capital ratios. We explore that product structure, the market, and the market outlook with Matthew Monio. Matthew is Managing Director and Co-Head of Credit Risk for Man Group. Matt, welcome to Credit Crunch. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. So before diving in, I guess maybe a little bit about your background. I know my in-laws will be thrilled to learn. I believe you're a Longhorn, uh, and pretty much that whole side of my family is all wow. UT folk. So they're going to be thrilled at this one, but maybe a little bit more of your background in terms of what brought you uh, to Man Group, what brought you to this product structure in particular. This is hard to say. This is about 30 years ago. Um I started in the capital markets, um, trading banks and and uh, and sovereigns um, uh, on the EM side, and um, eventually made my made my way, um, you know, to to slightly less uh, volatile climbs, uh, and and started looking at um, you know U.S. and and then European institutions, um, and um, traded uh, essentially everything there was to, to trade, and invested in everything there was to invest in in uh, financial capital stack and financial firms, banks, insurance companies, otherwise, um, uh, equity, debt, uh, up and down the capital structure. And um, about um, 12 years ago now, maybe maybe even 13, uh, I started a firm called uh, Atlantis Capital Management in New York City, uh, specifically to uh, interact with European banks that were uh, almost um, certainly going to spend a decade um, uh, uh, thinking seriously about their capital and their capital structures and their balance sheets, um, and uh, and and felt like it was um, felt like there was a lot of opportunity, um, you know, to trade with them in in particular through uh, a type of structure that um, uh, many of the, the the folks at Lehman Brothers here in London uh, had worked on uh, in the early 2000s uh, and and marketed quite quite widely. And, uh, and these were essentially um, uh, synthetic securitizations, dual tranche, uh, with um, a junior uh, a piece of that tranche distributed uh, to, to investors. Um, and that was a, very much a, a Basel II, um, if you will, modification, which was rolling in in the early 2000s. Um, and, and so did that uh, up until um, 2000. Um, uh, or 2001, I guess, when um, uh, Man Group came calling, and um, we we had about a year of uh, discussions, and kind of agreed that this was a, a nearly perfect platform for us to come join, um, and and so uh, folded ourselves in, and I think have been have been really uh, you know excited and, and and pleased with with the decision since um, 
you know, since taking it two years ago. So I, I've now been here in London at MAN for uh, for two years. Excellent. So so let's maybe talk about that structure a little bit. You alluded to uh, a little bit there in, in, in your response. And so credit risk sharing, and I guess we can just call it CRS from here on out, that'll probably be a little bit easier. Uh, you know, it's a corner of the market that maybe not all of our listeners will be familiar with. So what is it, right, I guess is, is primarily number one, who does it benefit and, and why does it exist? Yeah, yeah, it's an, a bunch of, of excellent questions. And and so credit for sharing, at least as we sort of define it, is, is actually quite quite broad. Um, we spend quite a bit of time on a on a on a, a relatively large piece of credit for sharing, but all in all, you know, relatively niche business um, uh, that you've alluded to as well, which is which is or, or noted, which is uh, SRT. Um, you know, SRTs are, are securitizations. Uh, I had mentioned it, you know, earlier in talking about when we set up the prior firm, um, and it's just a really efficient, um, optimized way to trade uh, portfolios with banks. So it's not a true sale product. The, the, the assets are not actually sold off the bank's balance sheet. Um, and it's not a full notional product like a credit default swap would be. Um, it's also a fully funded product, meaning a hundred cents on the dollar of what we're responsible for or potentially responsible for, or uh, 100 cents of our limit of liability is fully collateralized, fully capitalized at the outset of the transaction. So we present no risk in, in SRT to the bank counterparty. And, uh, and, and, uh, and unlike, for instance, a credit default swap, which is effectively a form of insurance. Um, and, uh, and, and so a, a very, very efficient, uh, very clean way uh, to transfer risk um, on a defined discrete pool of assets that we can underwrite um, you know, from a bank to us. What that does is it reduces the risk weightings against those assets. And because it reduces the risk weightings, it increases the bank's capital ratio, i.e. the amount of dollars of capital held against the, the uh, uh, number of risk weighted assets. Um, so uh, often, oftentimes uh, referred to as capital relief or capital release transactions. Um, and uh, you might know that, uh, for instance, Freddie and Fanny um, have uh, have a very large um, program uh, of, of uh, what they refer to as CRTs that are, for all intents and purposes, the functional equivalent. So I guess what was the, I mean, you sort of alluded to a couple of these things that I just want to kind of maybe dive in. Uh, you talked about the, the structure, and I guess sort of what I'm hearing from there, and I think what we had talked about before is one of the advantages here is that they can't be bailed in. Uh, in terms of, like you had mentioned, CDS as being sort of separate and distinct insofar as you do have that counterparty risk if things go bump in the night. Uh, so I guess, is, is that uh, is that a fair assessment in terms of that feature of it? So everything to do with banks is always is always uh, you know needlessly complicated, right? <laughs> um, um, yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd be better off if we simplified, but I'd probably be out of a job too. So complexity is fantastic. Um, so you, you know, our, our uh, uh, the proceeds of any trade uh, that 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 we execute in, um, there are a few different um, ways in which the proceeds of the transaction um, uh, can can be treated, or or where those uh, dollars or euros or sterling can be can be resident, where they can reside. Um, and and in the United States, and one of the big um, you know, challenges uh, over the past few years uh, in the U.S. market for creating some clarity around um, uh, around around the market was how how to treat proceeds. So the Fed has been quite clear that now 
uh, as of the end of last year, that it uh, uh, vastly prefers a structure, which is to say, this is re realistically the only thing anybody's going to do, that it, that it prefers a structure where the note proceeds of issuance are uh, held specifically as financial collateral, which means then that they would be invested in commercial paper or something short and safe, U.S. Treasuries, um, and, and specifically ring-fenced against a given transaction. So the European structure is a bit different. And I say this, it doesn't mean it's the only structure, but the main structure prevalent in Europe would be what we might refer to colloquially as a direct note issuance, which means that we buy an instrument that for all intents and purposes is a senior preferred instrument. And our proceeds are then balance sheeted or they are commingled as part of the total capital of a, of, a, of a bank. There are protections in the European structure for us, and those can be uh, 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 structural protections. We might be, we would always be, in some sort of um, uh, 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 you know, bank that had um, uh, an extra layer of, um, uh, of protection for us, often meaning in a UK context, as a for instance, uh, a ring-fenced retail subsidiary. So uh, you can find any big UK bank and you'll see that there is a nowadays a, a holding company entity and there'll be a, a main operating entity and we would be down at that operating entity um, uh, with a, a level of protection. In the European Union through BRRD, which is the Bank Resolution and Recovery Directive, which essentially sets out how banks, if they fail, will be managed. Uh, we, we are uh, explicitly this senior preferred layer, which puts us uh, parry with uh, corporate deposits. Um, so, so we, we, we um, are largely above, largely meaning we, we are above, uh, the, the bright line tests for MREL and TLAC. These are European and Financial Stability Board definitions, MREL minimum requirements for eligible for own funds and eligible liabilities and TLAC total loss absorbing capital. So we are above that line, which means in theory, uh, you know, we wouldn't be bailed in now. Now, like the thing is regulators, they get, they get, they get lots of flex, which folks uh, who invested in CSAT one <laughs> learned. Um, so, so, uh, you know, we, we pay a lot of attention to our bank counterparties and to our bank uh, collateral. That's a very detailed, uh, probably, probably needlessly detailed uh, uh, answer of, uh, of, of what happens when we execute a trade and where the money goes. Well, that's the beauty of a podcast is people can always rewind and listen to that part about 42 times and, and just sort of take it all in. But I guess maybe let's maybe dig in a little bit to the, the portfolio itself in terms of you're working with the banks, you're taking on uh, sort of the risk component of, of, of some of these loan books, et cetera. I guess maybe what does that process look like? Do you guys have discretion over the borrower base or, or like what's the involvement? Is it just like a BWIC where they're going out and they're saying, we've got this book of loans, who wants to take the risk in it? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, there, there's uh, it, it, there's no uniform, if you will, way that that, that these deals, um, you know, eventually work out. Um, there will be um, there will be certain banks and certain times when they feel like the portfolios they might bring to market, meaning to one or more potential counterparties, might be relatively static. They might be relatively more open-ended. I would say if we cast our minds back 10 or so years, there was a lot more sort of interaction of you know, what what do you have? What are you interested in, et cetera, et cetera? As the market has matured, um, you know, I think I think both sides have a better sense of um, what's available 
there are now a lot of fairly regular um, programs. So we, we, we collectively, the you know, group of us doing this, have a pretty good understanding of um, for any given institution in any given program, what a portfolio is likely to look like. I have never seen a transaction where um, if, if we find a, a handful of obligations, obligors um, that, that we don't like, where the issuer says, uh, I don't care, I'm, I'm planning on keeping them in, uh, which is to say the, the issuers are, are uniformly flexible about allowing um, you know, for, for some, some horse trading. What they typically don't want to see is an attempt to fully um, you know, recast the portfolio. If they bring a large core portfolio, they don't want to be told, oh, by the way, this should be um, a trade fin portfolio. Uh, you know, they, they don't want to be told, okay, fine, but I want no uh, consumer discretionary or utilities or uh, technology, All right? That's just that, that sort of thing. Just it's, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's typically not, not feasible and viable. Um, uh, so it, it uh, there needs to be a bit of sensitivity around, um, you know, what, what you can and can't do. And in particular about uh, if we do make changes, what it means to the portfolio. So if you say to a bank, listen, I, I don't want anything except the, the, the four AA, uh, you know, uh, Moody's and S&P rated, you know, obligors in the portfolio, it's, it's probably not going to, it's probably not going <laughs> to serve anybody, right? Um, uh, so, so, you know, a little bit of sensitivity is always helpful. So then getting into just in terms of sizing, what have you guys seen in terms of typical deal size? And I guess I'd be interested to historically, have you seen that deal size that you typically do like increasing as the market share for the broader asset class has grown? Yeah, absolutely. The, the deal sizes clearly have grown uh, over the course of the last decade. You know, I'd say they, they you know, they, they've always been, you know, relatively large, right? Um, so typically a bank wouldn't, uh, you know, want to execute inside of, let's just say a hundred million. Sure. There are, there are the odd sort of, you know, 75, $80 million transactions, but, but I think a floor these days at a hundred euros sterling dollars is, is, is reasonable. Um, and, um, you know, we have seen transactions get uh, above 500 um, and sometimes get well above 500, but I would say, um, you know, the distribution, uh, you know, is, 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 you know, very few deals below 100, very few above 500. Um, and I'd say probably 250 to 200 to 25 to 50 is probably about, about where gotcha. And then in terms of, of leverage, it's a question I think, you know, we, we ask the majority of podcast guests, I'm curious on your guys, then do you, do you guys implement any leverage in this to kind of boost those returns in any way? Or do you guys keep it pretty much straightforward with the uh, how you get into these structures? Yeah, so the so the investments, the SRT version of CRS uh, is is implicitly leveraged because it's a securitization, and we're buying junior tranches. Now, it isn't. Uh, it it is um, on a on a pure gross leverage basis, or this like um, you know, uh, if if we don't risk adjust, um, you, you know, we're we're talking sort of um, you know tw- twelve times leverage, which which will, will typically feel you know, very high. Functionally equivalent, of course, to um, say CLO equity. Okay, so like the same, the same sort of multiplier there. You know, an eight percent tranche. Let's call it ten percent tranche, something along those lines. Ten to ten to twelve, twelve and a half percent leverage. Um, the asset quality, however, is quite different. So, uh, from a risk-weighted standpoint, we are often trading portfolios 
sub 50% risk weight. Which, what that means is uh, from a capital ratio perspective, if we're putting eight or 10 points down on a subordinated tranche, so if the, if the portfolio has been divided into two, a 10% tranche and a 90% tranche, and we're buying the 10% tranche, but it's a 50% risk weight. That means from a capital ratio perspective, we're putting up 20% capital, okay? Um, and of course, you can compare that to where banks are. And TLAC or MRL in, uh, you know, most of the banks, most of the big banks around the world nowadays, inclusive of, you know, this, so this is, you know, CET1 equity, AT1, uh, 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 Cocos, if you will, uh, tier two, and even maybe, you know, senior unsecured, um, are, are typically getting you to, um, you know, something on the order of 16 to 20% these days. So that's not a mistake. It's not, it's not an accident. The transactions themselves are geared to replace the capital that is held before the transaction takes place against the portfolio. So it isn't as if the bank can hold $100 million against a billion dollar portfolio, come and execute a transaction that's a $10 million transaction with us and $90 million of capital goes away. That is not what happens. In fact, after a trade, the combined money that we provide and that the bank holds against the senior exposure is significantly more, okay, not three times, but it's significantly more than what they were holding before the transaction would take place. That is, um, you know, uh, that's helpful to us. Um, uh, uh, it, it de-optimizes to some extent, detunes to some extent our, our transactions. Um, and, that, and that leads to, uh, you know, this is not a 25% return business, right? This is a 12-ish you know, percent return business. Um, uh, and that's because of the amount of, of capital we hold. I hope, hope that was... A... Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I, I guess I wanted to turn back to, to something you had mentioned just in terms of like the, the geographic breakdown. You, you walked us through how... European market differs from the U.S. market, but uh, you also brought up the the Fed decision that was in September, which you know obviously impacts the U.S. market. How how do you see that, like in terms of the overall growth of the asset class? Do you see the U.S. kind of in a way that that Fed decision opened up the floodgates for the U.S., or do you see Europe kind of being the the dominant market uh, over the next couple of years? So um, the U.S. will grow faster, of course, from a smaller base. Um, and the U.S., uh, you know, we, we expect, um, you know, will become a will become a major part of, of this market. Um, I think it stands to reason that for the next, uh, you know, five or more years, uh, um, it, it may well be that this is a market where um, Europe is still the majority of the issuance. That's a that's maybe also a market structure comment. Um, we have four institutions in the United States that, for all intents and purposes, are you know forty percent of the banking system, um, and and you know we probably have okay they're not nearly as big, but we have um, you know maybe twenty five or thirty you know relatively large and and for what it's worth you, you know pretty. Um, sophisticated firms. I, I know. I know. It, it's a lot of fun to like, like, beat on the European banks and talk about how, how terrible they are. Um, but they've been living under Basel II for a very long time. Basel III since the crisis, and now moving themselves into Basel IV. Um, and and the real step change was one to two, and it made banks much more sophisticated. The U.S. did not ever 
adopt to. Um, and, and so, um, you know, you have what would be considered relatively small institutions uh, in the United States uh, in terms of balance sheet size, um, capital or assets um, that, 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 that here in Europe are actually quite sophisticated. Conversely, you have relatively large institutions in the United States. We could probably point to one that's been on the news lately um, as, as, you know, not, not sufficiently sophisticated. So then I guess turning to broader market backdrops, are there specific uh, backdrops where you see like better or worse in terms of uh, origination and performance, like whether that's, you know, a higher interest rate environment like we've been seeing over the past couple of years or maybe a, a higher default cycle? How does how does the the asset class stand up in those specific environments? Yeah, so from my perspective, I think the asset class has performed just extraordinarily well, far better than I than I would have expected. I, I certainly expected the first, you know, few vintages, um, you know, to be to be standouts, and and they were, um, but but mainly, um, you know, the business really kept performing. Um, there have been the odd, you know, idiosyncratic um, uh, event. Okay, so you know, there have been bankruptcies over the last, um, you know, post crisis. Um, um, and I and by that what I mean is um, you know big 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 corporate bankruptcies and not evidently obviously distressed um, although there's some of those too uh, and and uh, and and so we we've had some that have been totally idiosyncratic we've had some that have been uh, you know related maybe to the to the oil retail shakeout of late 2015 2016 um, we've obviously had some COVID uh, impacted um, uh, and and um, uh, and 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 yet it, it it hasn't really meant all that much, mostly because the transactions are fundamentally well structured. They tend not to take outsized single name risk. They tend not to take outsized, um, you know, industry risk. Um, uh, uh, you know, the the U.S. Um, and and the the Levfin business more broadly, which has seen in particular recently a bit more um, uh, distress, um, you know, is is, is 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 there's not great representation of that business um, in SRT. The vast preponderance of Levfin finds its way into CLOs and or um, you know broadly, uh, excuse me, direct direct. Um, you know, lending BDCs. Resident, it is. It is to a small extent. Um, re, it's not really re, resident on on the banking system's balance sheet. Um, so, so uh, you know, I, I think I think those have been some some drivers. Um, I think we've learned a few lessons from some of the very idiosyncratic events that might have been in a little bit more heavily concentrated portfolios, um, and and those have um, you know those have caused some consternation. Um, and uh, thinking back, we've had a we've had a handful of issuers that um, you know have been resolved. Um, so uh, of course, uh, Credit Suisse and um, Espiritu Santo back in the day, and Popular in Spain. Um, so so um, and and those have all worked out fine. Um, uh, but I but I think they, they they keep us collectively honest about the risks we're taking. Um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, bank bank resolution failure. So I guess that maybe gives rise to sort of the due diligence question in terms of uh, when you're sort of looking and evaluating a portfolio, is the due diligence at the, the loan level or is it at the bank level? Like where's the focus and, and sort of what's the, the exercise look like there? Yeah, um, it's absolutely at, at, at both is the answer. But um, 
you know, if, if we, if we stylize this a little bit, um, you know, the more we might be looking at a large corporate portfolio, right. We, we, we tend towards underwriting the names in the portfolio as opposed to the bank. Okay. So like, like in extremis, it would all be underwriting the names in the portfolio and we wouldn't even think about the bank. We wouldn't even care now, like really pushed. I, I might even be willing to defend that proposition, um, uh, as being, as being tenable. We still underwrite the bank, but whatever. Um, as you move across to smaller and smaller companies, yeah, you need to do more and more underwriting of the bank, partly because you can do fundamentally less underwriting of the portfolio, uh, of the uh, of the individual obligors in the portfolio. A, because there's too many. Uh, you know, we can often have in excess of ten thousand line items. So this looks more like um, resi or or auto. Uh, or you know various forms of ABS than it does CLO, for instance, um, and and so then you know we really want to understand why a bank is doing something, how it's doing it, um, and and uh, whether it's going to continue to do it, um, who its people are, um, lots and lots and lots of issues, how it's funded, what its creditworthiness is, what its deposit base looks like, again and again and again, all all these sorts of standard you know things you would thing to do if you were if you were uh, doing credit analysis on a bank um and um and that's that's uh, that's just that's just really fundamentally super important to us we we really genuinely view what we do as regardless of, of what the asset class is um we really view what we're doing is uh providing a form of equity capital to a bank so, you know, even, even, even if we get, you know, even if we think it's amazing that we shed all these other risks, right? Operational risks and agency risks and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that plague the banking system. Okay. Even if we think it's wonderful that we do all that and we can concentrate our risk down to a defined portfolio that we can underwrite, we still very much want to understand like why, why our bank counterparty is in the business and, and, and whether they're good at what they do or not. <laughs> Seems like a, a good question to ask. So I guess yeah. maybe maybe one of the things that sort of comes up um, in that and some of it you alluded to, sort of the, the energy dynamic in 2015, 2016, and obviously given the nature of your exposures, you would have been through the the sovereign European crisis, the pigs crisis, whatever you know acronym you want to throw on it of 2010, 11, 12, et cetera. When you're seeing things like that that are sort of very uh, sectoral or regional do you pivot the portfolio in terms of where you're trying to do deals into or away from those types of headwinds? Yeah, we do actually. I, I I'd love to tell you we don't. I'd love to. I'd love to. You know, it, it seems it seems the more I don't know. It seems the more logical thing to to tell you. You know, no, we just you know. But um, yeah, we do. Um, we 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 sort of have um, we sort of have a belief that um, you know, uh, we're we're not we're not we're not trying to actively pick things, but we are um, trying to look sort of three to five years out and we're trying to figure out like what, what doesn't, what doesn't feel great. So it isn't going to surprise you that it's been a number of years that we have not wanted anything to do with real estate. Um, and, and listen, don't get me wrong. There's amazing real estate people out there. There are real estate people. I, I, so if I could be 20 years younger, 
I would want to be one of these real estate people because the next decade is going to be extraordinary for them. For people who can go and they know, you know, ground level, they know how to refurb buildings, you know, for the for real God's honest real estate people, this is amazing. I am not a real God's honest real estate person. <laughs> oh, um, I hate to point this out. You're also not 20 years younger. But, well, uh, there's, but there's Sam... that downside. Yeah, there's that downside. <laughs> yeah, I've got an opportunity. <laughs> Career change. Exactly. So, so, you, you know, uh, so, so it, it, that, that it's important to understand that's not really what this business, this business doesn't allow me, if you will, to be like a distressed investor, to be an activist investor, be an active investor. Right. Um, and I have enormous amounts of respect for all of those people and all of those businesses. Um, uh, and I, and I fully appreciate the fact that like the, I'm not in a position to be able to do that. Okay. Um, so uh, another one, um, uh, you, you know, that we, that we, that we, you know, worry about is is you know sort of if you will macro conditions, um, and and there there are certain you know obvious geographic um, uh, locations where you know there there looks today there looked uh, 15 years ago when we started 14 years ago when we started um, you, you mentioned them pigs um, you, you know it was it was quite difficult um, in in 10 11 12 uh, to do much um, in, in in certain in certain countries um, and and uh, and we we think these are largely long cycle risks. So I know the conventional wisdom is that nobody saw the mortgage crisis coming in the United States in 2008, but that's just fundamentally not true. There were tons and tons and tons of people who did, and many of them sat around for years and years and years ahead of time, screaming and yelling about like the insanity of what was going on. Um, the problem is everybody was making money and whenever was making money, no, nobody wants to hear the guys who are like, this doesn't, this doesn't work long term. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we, we have this belief in, and so, so yeah, we do, we will shift the portfolio to try to avoid places. It, the, again, I, I have this great luxury, you know, I used to do long, short credit equity, uh, you know, that sort of thing. I did capital structure arbitrage fund and, um, you, you know, that this truism in, in liquid markets and, you know, your, your timing has to be good. My timing doesn't have to be good. That's the biggest luxury in the whole wide world. I just have to like look out and say, okay, fine. That looks a little ugly. So I guess maybe a couple of questions that sort of arise out of that. I guess number one, uh, you know, when things are happening in real time and maybe you sort of assess the issue as, as being maybe problematic but not, you know, uninvestable, right? I guess uh, I, maybe something like Brexit comes to mind, right? Where maybe you have like a wholesale sort of pricing impact across the market. Does that impact how you, because presumptively you're still going to do stuff in sterling, but do you look for greater concessions and that sort of thing when there's a lot of sort of noise around a situation? Yeah, it's 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 another it's another great question, another great example. Um, you know, the UK really really was, um, you know, post post Brexit was was, was great. The market. Um, you know, was horrified um, in many ways and, and, and recoiled. Uh, and for a number of years, um, you know, transactions that we saw in the UK um, were arguably um, incrementally safer and incrementally higher yield. Um, yeah, the UK has got its, its issues. Um, certainly it does. And, and um, you know, I, I think um, all in all, I think the Brexit impact might have been marginally worse than we thought it would be in 2016, but it took much, 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 much longer for that pain to play out. And it has been largely offset by a very, very um, conservative and oligopolistic banking system here in the United Kingdom. 
um, bank competition is, um, is, is great for borrowers and, and every once in a while great for savers even. Um, but it, but it isn't really great for, for folks who invest in banks. Um, and, and so I want to be a little bit careful, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, the fact of the matter is I, I love anti-competitive markets. Um, but you know, who doesn't, right? Uh, I think it was Peter Thiel who, who, who wasn't it? Wasn't he the one who said, you know, every every company is ultimately trying to be a monopolist, right? Yeah, of course, that's the end all the end all <laughs> exactly. goal of every company, yeah, yeah. right? Of course. Yep. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, um, yeah. So so that, that that that's an area that we've that we've um, you know that we've looked at. Um, you know, I would I would point to, you know, I, I think I think Italy's been a, a strong market, consistently um, uh, uh, deleveraging in the non financial corporate sector in Italy, um, consistently high spreads. Um, uh, uh, we, we have not done much in Italy all in all, a little bit, um, but not much. Um, and, um, and, and we should have done more. Um, so I think that's an example. And obviously the, the few Levfin deals that have been done, um, the folks who have done them have been, have been fantastically remunerated. Um, you know, that's an area where people have been consistently too bearish forever. Um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, hats off to everybody in that market. Um, they've built a, they've built just a fantastic machine. Uh, and I, I genuinely hope that they continue to do, uh, super well, both in, in BSL all the way across to direct lending. Um, uh, I think it, I think it serves an important purpose. Absolutely. So I guess maybe another question in terms of, uh, you know, when you get the portfolio outstanding, I guess, you know, or is it just basically uh, done on an average age basis or the portfolio, you get your money back as the portfolio winds down? And I guess uh, one other question that sort of comes to mind when I think about other maybe structured product type deals. Uh, sometimes they'll have sort of features where you can swap in loans or exposures if something you know, breaks some sort of covenant or term of, of lending and that sort of thing. I guess I'm trying to understand those two factors uh, within the within the nature of like a CRS. Yeah, so we would refer to those two things in in reverse order as um as uh, you know replenishment, um, uh, which is this idea of like uh, for some defined period of time there may there may may not, um, but there may be um, rights um, that the that the collateral manager in our case collateral manager means the bank. Um, they, they may have to manage the portfolio. Those are very, very tightly um, uh, managed uh, in the documentation. Um, so uh, very, very, um, uh, very proscriptive about what they can and cannot do as you move through time. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, deals are anywhere from static, meaning no replenishment, to potentially replenishing for as long as two or three years. In particular, shorter, faster, port faster uh, amortization portfolios, which if you if you if you just did them static, they would go away so quickly that it almost wouldn't even justify doing the transaction um, or in some cases wouldn't justify it. A, a trade fin transaction will run off in six months. Um, so obviously you want to replenish for a year or two. Um, and and um, and then, um, you, you know, I think um, so. So, you know, replenishment um, is, is that key feature than this next piece I alluded to it as runoff and how quickly that takes place. Um, this is a function of, uh, you know, CPR and, uh, uh inherent amortization, i.e., you know, structured amortization of a given loan, um, like a U.S. residential real estate loan, um, is, you know, 30 year self-am, uh, has a, has a, uh, amortization pattern that you can, you can immediately, um, 
you know, see for yourself, plot out. Um, and, uh, and, and many loans do, in particular on, on the SME side. Um, large corporate uh, standard, like a revolving credit facility, typically is issued for five years. Typically, CFOs don't like them to get inside of a year. Um, so they have an effective life of about four. But then, of course, companies are always doing things. They're making acquisitions, um, you know, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and those can often lead uh, a CFO or his or her team to come to market and say, I want to change my documentation. That would be an amendment that will often, they will often use that as a moment to extend the maturity back out. And so those are often events which will kick a, kick uh, an exposure out of the portfolio. So there's a fair degree of activity, I should say, uh, going, going on inside, uh, you know, the portfolio uh, at any given time. And then, and then uh, as the portfolio amortizes, there are two different structures, one in which uh, as it amortizes, we amortize our note that we own amortizes on a pro rata basis with the portfolio. Portfolio shrinks by 10%, our note shrinks by 10%. Another form, much less loved by the issuers, is one where <laughs> our transaction is static, which means if we have a 10% of a total and the portfolio goes from 100 to 50, we're still at 10. That means if we go from 10% of the total to 20% of the portfolio. And that continues in essentially until we are 100% of the total portfolio. Obviously, banks don't like that because they pay us a lot of money. And as the portfolio gets really small, Okay, fine. They're paying it on a relatively smaller base, but they're but they're but, you know they're, it's, it's, they're paying us a huge amount of the protection becomes super uneconomic. Um, so everybody everybody likes a a pro rata amortization. So I, I'm shifting gears a little bit here. I'm curious just in terms of how you all hold these actual structures. Like, are they held in in funds? Are they held in SMAs? Where where do they live in the broader Man Group ecosystem? Yeah, super, super good question. Um, so, I, you know, the, the market is like roughly 50% private and 50% illiquid. Okay, it's club, you know, we like our version of a syndicate is like five buyers, six buyers, seven buyers. Okay, um, that's what we would call a syndicated deal. Otherwise, club is two or three. Um, and of course, bilaterals, just, just private bilateral. Um, so th this is not a market that you trade. This is a market that you enter into in the primary um, and they mature on you uh, someday out in the future. And as a result, you, you, we, can't, we can't offer, and I don't know of any of my competitors that offer liquidity um, in, in funds that, that, that hold these. It, you know, th there will be some small allocations maybe in multi-strategy, liquid multi-strategy funds out there, but um, anything that's remotely pure play um, is, is going to be closed end uh, or is going to be non-redemption. So we run an open end, uh, but non-redemption, non and, and that works well for us. Um, uh, and it, it just means that, that um, you know, the traditional private credit structure. So, you know, you have a harvest period and your, your assets amortize away. Um, that's a, it's a super, super safe model. And, and, um, and, and that's, where the, that's where the vast preponderance of these assets uh, reside. Um, and then, and then we have both funds and, and to your point, we have, uh, what, what, uh, I believe you said was separate accounts. It's kind of an imprecise term, effectively a, a fund of one, um, for, uh, institutions that are of sufficient scale that they, that they want, um, you know, some level of, um, of, you know, not non-commingling, uh, for all intents and purposes. So then turning to, I guess, the broader competitive landscape, how, how do you think about the current market size versus the, the broader addressable market? Do you, do you see a lot of room for growth for the industry or do you see like certain ceilings just depending on how big in terms of the assets for banks are, are looking uh, more broadly? Yeah, I think the so the market's been growing at a super normal pace now for you know a long, long while since the crisis. Now, I mean, it 
for all intents and purposes, securitization was dead for 12 months, in, you know, 2009, early 10, um, and then began to, you know, began to get back on its on its feet. Um, so, you know, small base effect, sure, um, but it, but it's been growing, you know, really consistently um, and really fast, uh, and it will continue to grow really consistently and really fast, um, and that that you know growth, I suspect, will will continue um, long after I'm doing something else. Um, yeah, you know, and so hopefully um, on a beach sipping yeah, some so, margaritas uh, or something. Uh, that'd be that'd be nice. Yeah, changes in latitudes, changes in latitudes. That's exactly right. Um, we'll, are we, we'll are we be... quoting Jimmy Buffett? Is we are. We are. Ends? I was just going <laughs> to say we're all going to be singing Jimmy Buffett by the end of the, the, the podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and and uh, you know, the, I mean, in particular, the 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 there is um, there is both uh, deepening in core issuing Western European markets with banks issuing uh, more programs referencing more diversity of collateral. There is expansion into um, markets like Poland, Greece, uh, Canada. Um, and, of, and of course, you know, the 800 pound gorilla, which is, you know, the US banking system, um, uh, um, uh, which which is, is beginning to come online. So, um, you know, that that combination and, and you know, there's there's no reason that the Japanese uh, aren't, you know, aren't um, eventually issuing more significantly. Um, they're large. They're very large players in the global corporate um, markets, um, you know, potentially some other areas, Potent, potentially a bit of expansion in EM. Um, but uh, but but, you know, the, the market's growing and going to continue to grow. Is the, so is then, the school setting? Oh, go ahead, Sam. Go. I was, I was going to say, just in terms of like the actual number of competitors, do you, do you see like the broader asset class has quite a few competitors to you all, or is it pretty tight knit in terms of who you're competing against? It's pretty, it's pretty tight knit. And, and, um, this is a real, this is a very difficult business for, um, a lot of asset managers. Um, it's a business that, that, that takes a lot of handholding, it takes a lot of upfront, um, uh, you know, the market uh, leader, PGGM, um, has 30 odd people uh, doing this. Um, that's a, that's, you know, that, that's, that's a lot of time and effort. And, and uh, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not the DNA to most um, uh, uh, liquid managers um, to, to, to take that time and that effort. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I think it's, um, it's unique enough. I, I don't think there's an unlimited you know, resource of people who have credit skills, structured credit skills, bank credit skills, bank reg skills, um, you know, on and on and on. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to assemble all that. So I guess I wanted, was kind of curious as you're answering, you talked about some of the geographic opportunity there. Is the skill set largely fungible? You're just doing sort of the same thing in different markets or if you go into a market like a Poland or, or sort of a, any of the CE markets or Japan, is there a, a, you know, you have to bring on a new skill to sort of really tackle those? Yeah. So, um, candidly, part of the attraction to, to man group was, um, was, was that, which is to say, um, you know, leveraging resources that they might already have in house. Um, so, um, sitting right, there uh, is a native uh, Polish speaker, as a for instance, um, uh, you know, I have native native um, 
Spanish speakers, uh, 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 French speakers, Italian. Um, uh, I have colleagues in Japan who we work with. Uh, I have colleagues in Korea that we work with. Um, uh, we we have we have pretty strong insights um, into into these local markets, and there are there are fundamental distinctions, right? Um, you know uh, the the you know these these various asset markets um, at a distance might look very similar, but they can often be quite distinct. Uh, everybody is talking about um, you know multifamily New York City um, these days, uh, or at least for the last week or, week or so, and um, you know that's a that's a that's a very unique market and um you know kind of ironic because otherwise in the united states multifamily resi is uh, is doing is doing okay um uh, but it but it's doing um at least the rent regulated part of it is doing profoundly poorly uh in in uh, new york city right now um you know Man manhattan uh prices are down some 35 40% from the highs um and and uh, uh, you know that's a that's a function of you know New York State legislation passed in 2019, um, and and of course uh, over exuberance leading up to that, um, and uh, and you know those are those are those are you know you, you you have to get pretty granular to start to pull stuff like that out. So um, so that, that we 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 attempt to do that, and we spend we're super conservative about moving into new um, geographies. Um, uh, we we have to find. Um, with fund law firms uh, that we that we uh, like and and believe in, uh, and we have to find analytic talent, uh, and we have to find you know principally as you as you asked you know local uh, local analytic talent, i.e. i.e. folks who you know can speak the language and uh, you know can go and talk to people and find the right information. So I guess one other thing uh, you know I'm kind of curious about in terms of just thinking about how you sort of go to market, is there uh, are you benchmarking against cash are you benchmarking like what's the re like what are you measuring yourself against in terms of saying here's how we're outperforming or not outperforming yeah another good question i don't i don't i don't know here's your I'll, I'll, double digit return don't worry about it <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm gonna be careful on this um <laughs> um you know, we, we, we largely think that there are um, in investments that should generate a similar kind of return. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, subordinated CLO tranches, i.e. sort of equity double B, are, are a reasonable, a reasonable proxy. And, and by default, um, or maybe not by default, excuse me, by comparison, uh, you know, BDC um, equity, for instance, um, is is a is a reasonable comparison. Um, I think I think AT1 um, or some combination of AT1 and, and common equity, but of course that becomes a like a like a, a laughably low hurdle because you know one or two banks aside, the last decade in uh, in in bank equity has been uh, has been laughable. Um, uh, so so you know, but the, but 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 those are all sorts of ways I think that you could you could say okay, we're, we're you know we're more or less taking credit risk and we're more or less putting uh, some form of leverage into it to create an output which is kind of low double digitish, high single low double, um, and and then and then I, I think people can sort of take it from there. I've, I've never done long only. So I've, I've never been like, I've never had like a, like this transparent, like 
you know, like I have to beat the S&P 500. Uh, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Um, uh, so, so, um, yeah. Uh, but, but I'm, but I'm, you know, I, I sort of laugh because I'm, I'm asked the question on almost a daily basis. So, and I still don't have a good answer. Well, now they have the podcast, uh, just reference them to. <laughs> exactly. So you, you all published a, a white paper in May, just talking about CLOs versus CRTs. And then one thing that you highlighted in there was just recovery rates for SRTs relative to leverage loans. I'm just curious. Uh, it, it looked like it was around 80% on the SRT side, 66% on the leverage loan side. Where do you see the the big difference then there in terms of those recovery rates? Yeah, like what's driving the, the yeah, differences? Yep. Yeah, okay, right, right. So, and and uh, you know, funny enough, I, I I was with some people the other the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they said um, they said, oh, that white paper you guys you guys wrote was um, was uh, like that that's being used as literally a blueprint by people to get into your market these days. I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna go yell at some of the people who said I should write that. Kind of thing. <laughs> Let's simplify um you know banks uh bank lending into like pre-crisis and post-crisis okay this is, is a pretty big sea change for them all right um and for the most part you know the the craziness of the naughties has been replaced by this conservatism sense um banks want to lend at the top of the capital structure they want to take security if they can uh, and they want to have lots of capital subordinated to them so if something happens they are protected we still believe that banks are operating fundamentally in that in that mindset but i think that is a super important piece of why bank uh, issued managed underwritten financed credit uh, has performed so well over the last decade um, i also think that this um, restructuring of the credit markets with clos and BDCs. This has been really positive because it's uh, reducing the volatility and the procyclicality of lending. Um, it's reducing the uh, the leverage broadly in the in the in in the credit markets, um, and and it's uh, e extending um, permanent capital more deeply uh, into the credit markets. What do I mean by that? Like, like when banks lend, banks always know in the back of their mind that they're subject to their funding and their funding, there's both a retail element of that with retail deposits and they sometimes get scared and, and there's, there's an institutional element. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, it, it was always the retail element that, that killed banks over. Today, it's more the institutional. And, um, and, and, uh, uh, but, but nonetheless, um, you know, banks have to always keep an eye on, on that. Um, so they, they tend to recoil very quickly. Um, the capital markets themselves, the bond markets tend to recoil, but these committed capital facilities, like you will see in private credit funds, they don't because they have gobs and gobs and gobs of drop powder. So the last 18 months, this has been an extraordinary story has been the story of direct lenders gobbling up huge market share into bsl direct lenders are now routinely okay sometimes it's a club but they're routinely making multi-billion dollar loan commitments that's extraordinary it's really an amazing amazing fact super good for everybody involved um uh and 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 all of this is driving you know better behavior from the credit markets 
Um, so, you know, these, these recoveries are, are, are not, they're not a function of something I do. I'd love to take credit for it. Um, and they're not, it isn't as if like, you know, on January 1st, 2009, every commercial banker woke up and was like, wait a second, you know what I've been doing wrong my whole life. I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to change. No, it's the fact that structurally when you lend with lots of subordination, when you take a lot of security, when you don't lend 90 cents on the dollar, where there is security, instead you say, I don't lend a dime more than 60%. Think about the situation that the US banking system would be in if we were still lending against commercial real estate like we did in 2006. I mean, uh, we'd, have, we'd have like four banks left in two years. Um, we will have more than four banks left in two years because banks became more conservative. And now they have 40 points at worst, okay? of subordination, often 50, 60, 70 points of subordination. That's going to literally save the US banking system over the next couple of years. Um, uh, the, 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 these, are, these are the drivers. Con, you know, conversely, uh, you know, our colleagues in, in, in the private credit markets, obviously there's a lot of competition um, and there's a lot of uh, drive towards, uh, you know, unit tranche uh, and, and that kind of, uh, you know, origination efficiency. Um, uh, uh, and, and, and of course, over time, that is going to lead to deteriorating recoveries. And we have seen, that's, that's clearly evident already. We will continue to see that play out. I don't think it's going to be catastrophic. Uh, I think all in all, there's fairly good underwriting going on. There's particularly good underwriting, I think, in the direct um, space. Um, they, they take their underwriting super seriously. Um, uh, but, but there will always be this big, big always. For a long while here, uh, uh, there, there'll be this big distinction between recoveries, in particular for large corporate revolvers, um, you know, versus uh, uh, you know versus funded term loans and, and certainly bonds, which bonds are bonds are the, the you know the kids left out in the cold, um, which is okay because you know they get scooped up by distressed guys who are then the smartest guys in the room and they, you know, beat the tar out of everybody else and so the, the ecosystem is healthy. Right? <laughs> uh, just uh, revives your love of humanity. It was a compliment in a way for Noel in his old distressed days, huh? Exactly, exactly. Um, but I guess just another question from my end, just in terms of risk, if, if you had to narrow it down to like one or two risks, the primary risk that you see for the asset class, what, what would those be? And I mean, just thinking about it, I would assume, you know, banks pulling back on lending or obviously something like Credit Suisse that was pretty significant and its overall impact to the market. For you, what what are you kind of worried about and thinking about? Yeah, it's excellent questions. So there is an ever-present in this business, well, there should be an ever-present fear, worry, concern that your counterparty might have woken up and decided, yeah, I know this is about capital, but maybe I should make this about stuffing folks with losses, right? So... Um, you know, it, it, that that's something we pay an enormous amount of attention to. You know, we 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 have an, we, we we spend we spend genuinely an enormous amount of time and effort and and candidly money um, in monitoring and surveilling our portfolios. Everything we get from everyone is goes into a database. Um, that's super. That sounds maybe you know in this day and age easy, but it isn't. We get totally different um, you know, form uh, of, of, of information from different folks, sometimes different languages. So it all has to be translated to something that's similar, um, uh, you know, made uniform, cleaned, um, you know, and, and dropped down and then, and then, and then surveilled through time. Um, and, and this is honestly one of the few places 
in the world. And, and uh, so that, that's my, that's my, that's my step one, you know, step two would be, um, you know, do banks just start um, I- expanding into assets that maybe just don't fit quite as well? Um, uh, do, do banks that maybe don't have as strong an underwriting culture or are in, um, you know, just weaker positions, um, you, you know, do, do they bring deals to market, uh, you know, that blow up? Um, so like, these are things I worry about because I, I worry about like, uh, how it, how, how, the, how we're perceived. I worry about fundamental misunderstandings from the reg community about um, what we're doing um, and the risk uh, involved in what we're doing in particular that we might um, uh, uh, bring to the banks. Uh, like what, if we do a trade, like to what extent are the banks at risk of to us? Um, they are not, we fully collateralize everything we do, US dollars, treasuries. Um, uh, but but you, you wouldn't necessarily know that um, you know, listening to the to to some of the folks, um, you know, on the fringes of the regulatory uh, debate, and then finally, uh, I I worry about um, not too much competition, but I worry about too sort of aggressive competition. I worry about people who might have um, slightly different business models that think can they can underwrite for a couple of hundred basis points lower uh, than 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 everyone else to win business. Um, uh, because they have a, they have a different model. Uh, you asked about leverage, uh, earlier, um, like these are not assets that fit with traditional leverage and non-traditional leverage, i.e. leverage that doesn't mark to market and doesn't, doesn't subject you to margin, uh, is very, very expensive. Um, so there's a question, you know, of course, as to whether it's worth it to, to utilize very expensive, um, debt capital. Um, and, and, uh, and yet some, some folks, you know, might, might have different structures where they have enough liquid assets. So, you know, multi-strategy credit funds, for instance, who, who might feel like, yeah, okay, fine. Um, you know, implicitly because my book is, you know, is, is, is sort of three times leveraged on, on, on repo or, um, you know, PB or, or whatever, um, you know, that, that I, that, that, that I'm happy to underwrite this, you know, well inside of where the rest of the market is. So I, I worry a bit, I worry a bit about that. Interesting. So I guess I want to stay mindful of time here, but I do have a couple of final ones for you. I guess, you know, the first one is is we think about the sort of the low default experience and we think it's sort of, uh, I guess, the nature of the stress that, you know, the asset class has sort of navigated since the financial crisis. And I guess, you know, given, you know, uh, obviously great financial crisis was predominantly non-corporate, right? Uh, we mentioned the the energy one post pandemic was met with a tidal wave of liquidity very shortly after sort of the damage started to get done. So I guess when you think about the asset class, you feel like you've been through the test that it's really sort of navigated, you know, that period that sort of flushes out strategies. Just if I if I don't answer the question in a coherent way, just come 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 back to me. I um I'm you know look I, I, honestly I'm 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 concerned. Um, preoccupied maybe uh, with the reality that uh, most of the post-crisis period has been at or near zero. Uh, Europe, even you know, even sort of more aggressively than the United States, where we, we've had lots of negative interest rates, and the transition um, to you know positive interest rates, which I'm assuming, subject to my constant proclivity to change my mind, but um, you know, is 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 a is a you know is a, is a you know, is, is a thing now. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I, I worry about what that looks like. You know, um, I've, I've been caught over the course of the last year sort of between two worlds of one, um, you know, kind of 
wanting the market, but the market, the, 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 the economy to slow down simply because let's face it, uh, you know, overnights, uh, at, at, you know, somewhere between, you know, half of, of, you know, zero and where they are today, that, that'd be great. So, you know, us at two fifty three hundred and Europe at, you know, one fifty two hundred. um, you know, that, that'd make me feel incrementally uh, a little bit better for, for, um, you, you know, some of the, some in, in particular, some of the smaller ticket SME type exposures, um, which I, which I just worry, um, you know, got, got addicted to, 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 to Zerb. I will say though, okay. Um, and this really just is, is it's, it's super important. Um, again, because of the crisis and because of how brutal the fallout from the crisis was in particular in the European banking sector and, and how sort of quasi-capital impaired these institutions have been for so long. Um, you know, they've really stuck to their knitting. So had we experienced ZERP in like the 2000s, I mean, like, you know, we'd all be living in caves now, right? Because the banks would have just, they would have gone completely haywire. Um, but you could certainly have justified much more aggressive lending in, in Europe, in resi, in commercial, in... CRE in everything. Um, if you were just looking at things like, uh, you know, coverage ratios, um, you know, but, but, but folks, folks were, folks were fairly prudent all in all. Um, and, and nowhere more so, uh, than in, um, you know, household and, uh, SME, i.e., you know, retail exposures in Europe is, is that, is that, you know, now becoming evident, which is to say, sure. We've had we've had some credit migration um, in portfolios. Sure, uh, we've 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 had some defaults, but they have been a small fraction. If you had told me three years ago, guess where we're going on overnights? Put the crash helmet on, right? It hasn't happened. There's no sign evident that it is happening. The longer we stay here, the more it's going to continue to drive stress, and slowly this will leak out. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's not going to, but um, clearly the only reason is because for the last 10 years, these institutions have been fairly, fairly, fairly too extremely conservative. Yeah, I think the, the, the point is well taken there in terms of, I think a lot of people, to your point, like if you fast forwarded from three years ago, a lot of people would see a lot more damage out there than, than has maybe sort of uh, been realized. But last question for you here, and we always save the best for last because we know people love to talk about regulation. They wake up dreaming, like, can I answer a question about regulation today? Uh, I guess, you know, what's on your radar in terms of, you know, the regulatory climate, in terms of what maybe impacts you? We talked about the Fed a little bit. We talked about Basel two and three, I, I guess. And in, in when you kind of step back, it seems like maybe you guys are and maybe I'm misunderstanding, but like maybe on sort of the other side of the ledger where to some degree, the, the, the regulation actually helps you because a lot of it is targeted at, at sort of driving banks to improve their capitalization ratios. But is that a correct assessment, or is it maybe more neutral or hurtful? No, I think I think you know I, th I think I think regulation has been all, all in all. I think it's been um, it's it's been somewhat helpful to us, or helpful to us. Um, you know what what was Basel three about? It was about increasing the quantum and the quality, importantly the quality of regulatory capital. Um, you know, it was possible to get away with running a bank with no tangible equity in 2008. 
I mean, not, I shouldn't say 2008 because I'm trying to like market to losses. Let's, so let's go back 2006. Okay. What we found out in 2008 was in fact, it wasn't possible. Um, uh, you know, but, but the, but the models and the way, the way the, the regulation had worked, um, you know, you, um, the regulation didn't care much about tangible. It allowed you to use substantial amounts of non-common equity, um, you know, tier, tier one. And, and um, you know, I just wasn't asking for all that much either, right? So, you know, unsurprisingly, we developed towering amounts of leverage um, in, in the banking system. Um, and and now, now we have banks that are holding, uh, you know, really very, very substantial amounts of tangible common equity, um, which is the expensive stuff, right? So, uh, there's not a, a giant arbitrage between market-based capital, what we do, and bank capital, which is say in the favor of bank capital, right? Everybody just assumes, oh, the arbitrage is, you know, these, these Sharpies in the capital markets are, are carting all the, the stuff away and, you know, and, 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 you know, doing, doing some, you know, backroom deal that it's not going to hold up. It's really not the case, right? Um, you know, we can, we can trade with banks and we can generate relatively high returns and we can have relatively thick tranches, which protect us, you know, from volatility, um, still get, still generate decent returns. And that is, that is a, at least to a great extent, a function of the changes that were introduced in Basel three. There are ongoing changes, you know, with Basel four, Basel three endgame. Um, uh, there are some super arcane for a general audience, even candidly for a securitization audience, uh, you, you know, um, uh, discussions that are, that are finally effectively resolved around things like floors for, um, uh, 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 uh advanced, uh, internal ratings based, um, you know, internal models, uh, and, and how much, uh, you know, um, uh, how much improvement you can take from standardized models. Uh, and uh, a lot of that is now being, is, is being, is being wrung out. Okay, so we're we're pushing uh, the 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 most sort of aggressive models, the most optimized models. We're we're detuning them so they look more like standardized, um, and then we're adding increasing amounts of um, you know incremental uh, capital. Um, uh, capital non neutrality is the is the idea uh, between uh, you know a portfolio of loans versus a securitized portfolio of loans. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I think a lot of the most sort of frightening elements of this were managed um, over the last couple of years with European authorities and, and you know, the U.S. seems to have picked up on this. Um, uh, so we, we, we feel, you know, we feel pretty good about that. Um, and we feel largely like we're at the end-ish of a very long, very um, intense period of re-regulation of the banking system. I will note, and I'll toss it back to you, lest we uh, wind up seeing the sun come up back out behind me. But um, um, you know, I will note that we haven't solved all of the risks. Okay, we have rather myopically focused on asset risk, credit risk, some other market risk to an extent. And, and capitalizing against that. But the obvious thing that we have failed to fully address is, um, is you know, the other side of the balance sheet. There are two sides, believe it or not. Um, and and we, we haven't fully addressed um, 
uh, you know, liabilities. And in particular, what uh, is assumed to be the highest quality liabilities, which of course is deposits. So there's no, no giant shock that First Republic, Silicon Valley, Credit Suisse are all about a similar thing. And that similar thing is deposits, liabilities, deposit flight, in particular, low quality deposit bases dressed up as high quality deposit bases, um, you know, discussed in terms of core deposits, retail deposits, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, not. Um, and, uh, and, and, um, and, and I think that's, um, you know, that's too bad uh, to a great extent. Uh, I think there needs to be further work probably done. Uh, I don't think it really means much to us. Um, and then, and then, um, you know, lastly, I guess I would point and I would say, uh, you know, I think if you look at the um, uh, 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 multifamily resi portfolio at, at New York Community Bank uh, over the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, um, you, 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 up until this last year, you could easily have argued that the risk weights on those assets should, should have been very, very, very low. And in a pre-crisis world, low risk weight assets uh, and low amounts of capital means that would be a dead institution today maybe round one, but it's not, it's not a dead institution, right? Um, uh, and it's got, it's got plenty of capital and that's, and that's, that's partly, uh, you know, a function of, um, of, of, of tighter, tighter regulation. Um, um, and, and no, no, you know, giant coincidence that it was that institution, you know, moving into a uh, category four, um, uh, that, that, that precipitated the, um, you know, the write down. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, something, something probably to keep an eye on. All right. <laughs> so a lot to digest there. I think uh, the good thing is I think listeners are probably going to have to listen to this one a couple of times over, but uh, I, but I love it. I'll probably listen to it a couple of times over, but Matt, all, the, so all the nerds are going to send you fan mail <laughs> and all the normal people are going to be like, I'm never listening to your podcast again. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think my in-laws tuned out after Longhorns and probably said, "Okay, that's 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 good enough." Um, for that, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you making the time, uh, helping sort of illuminate all the issues around this. Uh, to our listeners, on behalf of Sam and myself, thanks so much once again for sharing your time with us. This has been Credit Crunch. <laughs>